Behind every success story, there is a long line of triumphs and defeats that remain hidden from others. These stories get condensed into journeys that minimize the struggle and wrap up with a happy ending. But we know that's not how life works. That's where From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay comes in. On today's show, you'll hear honest conversations about the challenges that Mark's guest faced and how they overcame adversity. Now, here is your host, Mark Azoulay. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Mark Azoulay. I'm sitting here with Linda Gratton, and she's talking about redesigning work, both you know, working hybrid, working, we're going to talk about the Great Recession, and we're going to talk about quiet quitting. She's a professor of management practice at the London School of Business, uh, London Business School, my mistake. Um, and I'm excited to hear what you have to offer. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me, Mark. Yeah. So this show, before we dive into the business topics, which I know our listeners love to hear, I want to hear a little bit about you. Um, what is your From the Ashes story? What's your connection to these topics? Well, um, I'm, as, as you heard, a professor of management practice at London Business School, but I didn't actually start out like that. I, I did a PhD in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I was really interested in self-actualization. I think something that you're interested in. Mark. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and then I went into a big company, uh, British Airways. I was chief psychologist there and then ended up uh, heading up psychology for one of the biggest consulting practices. I had a huge salary. A seven series BMW, if you can remember those wonderful things. And I threw it all up. And the reason I did that is that I decided I wanted to make a completely different change in my life. And I remember when I first went to London Business School uh, to talk about being an assistant professor there, they couldn't believe it. I was, my salary had reduced. Uh, I was getting actually 10% of what I got paid before, literally 10%. And I was, you know, in my th mid thirties. So this was a big deal, but I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And, and that's the life I've had ever since actually, since then I've been stayed a professor. I still do consulting, by the way, I do have my own consulting practice, but nevertheless, that for me was a massive change. Yeah. Can you say more about the motivator behind that change? Like what you want to get into teaching or into research or what, what was the draw there? Well, I'd always uh, research. So after I finished my PhD and then went to British Airways as chief psychologist, I'd carried on writing and carried on working with my colleagues in academia. So I actually had a pretty good CV. But what I didn't have was any time at all. I was just running around the world, jumping on and off planes there were very few women at uh, the company. In fact, when I came to London Business School, I was one of a, a very few uh, female professors. And I just wanted to have another way of living. And I decided to throw up this incredible job and start again, really, start again in a job where I had more flexibility, more autonomy. And in many ways, Mark, that experience really put me on the path to talk about how can we make work better for other people. I'd made it better for myself. I had a job now where I had some autonomy. I could, I could first of all, produce a child, which I certainly wouldn't have been able to do when I was running around the world all the time. I could spend time with my kids. I could see my kids growing up. And yet I could still be relatively successful. You know, I've written 10 books. I've sold a million copies. So, I, you know, it's worked for me, but it was a huge, uh, it was a massive change in my life. 
And I think it put me onto the path which is now important to me, which is to ask, how do we, how do we make work better for everyone? Yeah, so let's start there, right? You talk about making work more humane. Can you define for our listeners how, how you define humane? Well, by humane, I guess I mean two things. I mean the content of the job itself, which is to say, is what you're doing of interest to you? And, and maybe it's not, but perhaps you've got great friends around you, you know, colleagues at work that you love and that give you a great sense of meaning. So that's that's one of the aspects. And then the other aspect is about how much control you've got over your work. I mean, what we psychologists called autonomy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, can you, for example, have some control over when you work or, 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 or where you work or, or even why you work? And that's why, for me, the pandemic was such an important moment, because I think, you know, I've been talking about this, Mark, for years. I've been at London Business School for, for almost 30 years. And I'd written a whole bunch of books about how I thought work could change, but I didn't really see much change happening. But for me, the pandemic was an enormous break with the past. And I think it's all of us have come out of it as different people. I mean, you know that from your own practice. You must have talked to so many people who's had both good times and bad times during those pandemics, but we certainly came out of it in a different place than we went in. And so... I, I decided to write the book, Redesigning Work. I wasn't really planning to write a book. I was going to take last summer off. I've got a big family. I've got lots of grandkids. I was going to hang out in my house in France. But I decided not to do that and to write the book. And the reason I wrote that is because I feel we have a really important moment to change the way that we work. And I, and I don't want people to go back to where we were. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff in there. You know, I think... I agree with you. The pandemic really opened up a lot of doors for people, some positive, some negative. I, I think it showed a lot of people their negative patterns, their demons, stuff they had never contended with. And for a, a large percentage of people, that was actually their job, right? When they were able to really re-examine their job. And when you strip away the in-person office, they were like, oh, wow, I'm only here for the coworkers. You know, something like you said earlier, right? Or I'm only here for some of these benefits that all of a sudden are now gone. I don't have meaning in my life. I don't have a job that I connect with and I don't feel like I'm fairly compensated. Yeah. And I think, you know, the other thing that people really realized they hated was the commute. You know, of course, not everybody commutes, but lots of people in the US do. Lots of people here in the UK do. I mean, some people do two hour, three hour commutes a day and not doing that gave them the gift of two hours a day. And I think we all relish that. I have to say, to be honest, I'd always made a decision very early in my life, my working life, to work near where I, to live near where I work. And that's got all sorts of implications because I work in the centre of London. So it means I live in the centre of London. Uh, And, you know, so that can be tough at times. But I decided not to commute. But lots of people did commute. My brother, for example, commutes a couple of hours a day. And and when people got that time back, you know, that was just an astonishing thing. And and they started doing all sorts of things with it, Mark. I mean, you probably saw that in your own community. You know, they started spending more time with their neighbors. They started spending more time with their friends. They They could see their kids a bit more. In my case, you know, my kids are all grown up now, but my husband and I started eating healthy food. I mean, we, we, we came out of the pandemic a lot healthier because we had time to shop, to buy decent food, to cook decent food, to eat decent food, I have to say. 
I'm getting into really bad habits again because, <laughs> you know, where where there's a lot of celebrations going, isn't there? After after yeah, the pandemic, there's a lot, yeah, a lot of celebrations. Yeah. But nevertheless, you know, I think people came out of it differently, and they did think differently about what their work was. That home, many of them actually had asked before, "Hey, could we do hybrid? Can I work from home? Can I, you know, be with my kids?" And they were told, "No, no, 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 no." Right. Then this pandemic thing happened, and not only did their job not really change that much, some of them were actually more productive yeah. from working from home. I'm curious, what trend do you see that trend in you know the research that you've done? Yeah, well, well, yeah. Let me just say a couple of things about hybrid work. So, yeah, I, I was sort of fortunate in a way because I do sort of sit at the center of a whole bunch of networks, uh, CEO networks, um, networks also research networks. So really from March the 23rd, when we had that, and that, I'm talking 2021 now, when we had the lockdown, I kept a diary. In fact, I've still got it in front oh, of me. I think, awesome. I think I'm on volume, I don't know, 22 or something. They're all sitting, you can see, you've got, you can see my video, Mark, mm-hmm. you can see they're all, they're all sitting oh, behind yeah. me. There they are. Can you see them all? Mm-hmm. Those are the volumes. Um, and so I, I had a really good chance to look at exactly what was going on. And, and here's what I saw. Uh, the first thing I saw is that technology was astonishing. I, I do. I think we've all forgotten, at least, that that it, even ten years ago, this none of this would have happened. I, I mean, I work for tech companies as you do, Mark, and there's no way ten years ago that we could have moved as Fujitsu did, sixty thousand people into their home within yeah. a week. We, we just didn't have the technology to do that. It was too expensive. People didn't have domestic internets. That, were, that had any sense, you didn't have security systems and so on and so forth. So, so the first thing I'd say about the pandemic is, and you, you've heard, you know, the CEO of Microsoft make, making this point that people basically leapt to five years ahead in terms of their use of digital. And, and yeah. I think, so, so I don't want us to forget that because I think we learned an enormous amount about technology. We also learned a lot about work, the nature of work. I mean, We'd got into the habit of thinking that work equals an office. We thought that you you could only work if you're in an office. Now, there'd been some great studies of offices, by the way, before the pandemic. And what it had shown, although those studies really hadn't been very influential, is that when people, this is before the pandemic, go into the office, the first thing they do is they open their computer, they put on their noise-canceling headphones, and they work on their computer. That's what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And nobody was asking, why are you doing this in the office? Right. You, could, you can just do that from you your could, bedroom. <laughs> you, could, you could do it from the bedroom. So, so we suddenly realized there was stuff that we did that we could do from the bedroom. But, but the other thing that we learned is the stuff that we did that we loved about the office. And, I, and, and to be honest, I still think that conversations two years later is still happening. So what did we love about the office? Well, if you were young and you were learning stuff, you loved the office because you could observe people. One of the things that I did from the very beginning, Mark, is I have a column in MIT Sloan, the MIT Sloan um, magazine. And I wrote very early, a nice column, actually. In fact, if you anyone would like to go to my website, www.lindagratton.com, Linda with a Y, you'll see all those columns there. And one of them was called The Observed and the Observing. And it basically says that 
if you're young, part of the way that you learn about culture and norms and expectations is you watch other people. And we found that young people wanted to get into the office. I, I have an office in Covent Garden of my consulting practice, HSM. I was there yesterday and all the kids, all the young ones were there. They just they just want to be there. So we, we realized that the office was a place of acculturation. You know, that, that's a great place to watch other people. We also noticed something about friendship. And, and by the way, you know, when people are asking me, as they are at the moment, what's the next big thing? It's friendship, in my view. It's about it's a it's not just about connecting, which sounds a bit sort of transactional. It's actually actually about making friends. And so the office was also a shared space where we made friends. I mean, we didn't need a lot of friends, but we had one or two friends that we could talk to, that we could share our, you know, our hopes, our fears, our expectations. And so the office became a, we realized the office was a place of friendship. And then we also realized that the office could potentially be a place of creativity, you know, where you're brainstorming. I, I'm not completely persuaded by that, by the way, because I don't think we ever really use the office very well as a place of creativity. But I think as the offices are being redesigned now, as they are, you are going to see that architects and office planners are much more asking the question, how do people become more creative? So it's been a long journey, Mark. And, you know, I think I often think about it in terms of the of, of episodes, you know, we're sort of we're we're in we're in episode 20 of what happens when everyone goes hybrid. And there's probably another series to come. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of good stuff you're talking about there. I want to back you up to where you talked about friendship. Yeah. Right? What do you believe is the role of friendship in the workplace? And how do you like kind of cross that line or beyond that line of boundaries, right? Well, you know, interestingly, I've been thinking and writing about friendship for years and years. And I think it's because I'm a humanistic psychologist. Mm -hmm. I believe that connectivity is really important. I think friendship is the way that we connect to each other as humans, you know, where we talk about, we trust others, we talk about things that are important to us. I wrote a, a column in the Financial Times a, a couple of months ago about that. And I also did a podcast for the Financial Times about that. What was really interesting, Mark, is how many people got in touch with me or wrote a comment in the, in the newspaper saying, she's completely wrong. You know, you can't have friendships at, at work. You know, French, work is about status. I don't have any friends at work. I can't have any friends at work. This is not a right place. And so I wrote my column in MIT Sloan today, actually. So it'll be in, out next week about that. And the question I asked is, can you have a friend at work? And what I've, I, what I've, what I've begun to realize, and I'm very fortunate because one of my friends is Robert Waldingham, who's heads up the Harvard study on people's lives. He looks at people right the way through their whole lives, is that... You just have to go through a process of deciding whether someone's trustworthy or not, and then building from that. And, and that's something we have to do in any part of our life. I mean, nobody wants a friend who's untrustworthy. It doesn't matter so much socially. It matters a lot if their person is a friend at work. So really learning how to trust an, an, another is going to be fundamental to that. Yeah, so... I think that's fantastic. And, and in startups, that happens all the time, right? It becomes like a unit, a, a little team. People are really merging their personal life and their professional life. I have to say from a devil's advocate perspective, I've also seen it go the other way, right? Where all of a sudden people get into relationships, um, favoritism arises. You get all those kind of um, dysfunctional family dynamics that appear in, in the workplace. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And one of the reasons I invest in small businesses, and I'm on the board of a couple of them, is I love that. I love that yeah. energy. I love the friendship. And they're just like normal friendships. I mean, you've lost friends. I've lost friends. Uh, and sometimes they're people that you work with. And, and, and one of the points that Robert makes is friendships are complicated and they're messy. But that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't try. Yeah, so it requires like, you know, I think in the workplace, both policies and processes to deal with conflict resolution, right, to deal with um, the drama that arises. And it sounds like a shared intention and culture, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah. And I think also, you know, Mark, it's also about deciding whether somebody's trustworthy. Yeah. And, you know, I wrote today about all the, all the signs of somebody who's trustworthy. I mean, you and I in a moment can, can talk a little bit more about how do you decide whether somebody's trustworthy. But it's the sort of thing that, you know, kids learn. You know, are they somebody when when you tell them something that you think it's a secret, they tell everybody else? Are they somebody who tells other people's secrets to you? Are they somebody who overshares? Are they somebody who's jealous of you? Are they somebody who doesn't have your best interests at heart? These are not trustworthy people and they're not going to be your friend. Yeah, I think they're a fantastic topic to talk about when we come back from the break. I'm excited to talk about trustworthiness. I'm excited to talk about um, the future of work, what you see with technology, specifically around VR and virtual workplaces. Um, and I'm excited to talk about the role you see of work with self-actualization and how that might be part of someone's bigger purpose or meaning. So it's been a fantastic conversation so far. If you're a listener, hang on in there and we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit mark-azulay.teachable.com. That's mark, M-A-R-C-Azulay, A-Z-O-U-L-A-Y, dot teachable.com. Where can you listen to some of the world's top life coaches ready to dish out success tips and entrepreneurial guidance? The Voice America Empowerment Channel will do just that. Whether it's personal growth, building a better business, or inspirational life stories, make it a daily habit to tune into our programs. From weight loss and personal branding to law of attraction and increased happiness, you'll find it every day at VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. Our thoughts and feelings not only affect our own lives, but the lives of everyone around us. 
Find new meanings of love, authentic expressions, and better connections with the people in your life. Tune in to Love Light with Dr. Jean Marie Farish. This program will feature guests and discuss ideas that will bring a better life to you. When you find this perspective on love, it will change everything. Listen live every Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. Welcome back to the show. I'm sitting here with Linda Gratton, and we're talking about the role of friendship at work. And you brought up a really important point, which is only make friends with people that are trustworthy. So yeah. Yeah, can you yeah, share a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, well, it was actually talking to Robert that really cemented it for me because I said to him, you know, Robert, you and I know that friendship's really important, but I've written this article in the Financial Times about it, and I've had literally hundreds of comments saying, you must be crazy. I mean, there's no way I'm going to have anybody friend, uh, uh, friends at, at work. And he said, you know, Linda, most of us spend eight hours at work and friendship is the foundation of our capacity to be human. So if we take away eight hours a day and say this cannot be a place of friendship, we're taking out a lot of opportunities for us to have friends. And then, you know, he was saying this is a messy process. You know, being a friend, having a friend is messy because friendship is based on authenticity and it's based on intimacy it's about telling somebody about yourself you know telling someone I'm worried about my mom telling someone I think my kid might be depressed telling someone I'm really sad you know about what's happening to me right now and so for us to be able to share that sort of intimacy we have to be sure that the person that we think might be a friend is trustworthy and and that's something we all have to learn. And I must say, listening to Robert, it made me think, wow, I need to think about that as well. And he said, you know, you can see whether people are trustworthy just by their everyday actions, you know, like, are they telling you lots of secrets about other people? Do they gossip about others? You know, because that means they're going to do it about you. I mean, you know, you're not the only person. Um, do, are they, do they feel as if they might be envious of you? And so, you know, what I have begun to realize is that just because it's messy to have friends at work doesn't mean we shouldn't have them. Uh, we're much more likely, and we know this from a whole set of research, we're much more likely to stay in a job if we've got friends. And we're much more likely to be engaged with it. And that's why when you asked me earlier what about meaningful work, I did talk about the work itself, but I also talked about friendship. One of the things I, I mentioned to you during the break, Mark, that uh, I'm writing a story about my life, mostly actually for the Japanese, because I'm one of the best-selling authors in Japan. So they would like me to talk about myself. My guess is it will never, you'll never see it in America, but you might. And one of the, the, the raw memories I talk about is working in a, in a chocolate pack in a factory when I was 16 years old, uh, packing chocolate. So I was on one of those assembly lines where I stood there for eight hours a day, picking up chocolates mm. and putting them in, in on a, on a, on a, uh, 
in a chocolate box as it went along a conveyor belt. I was I was so bad at that job. It's such a difficult job. I mean, even as I speak about it now, Mark, I can feel my hands. Can you see? Well, you can see them. The, yeah. the listeners can't. I, my hands immediately go into the, the frame to pick up the chocolate. I'm still anxious about, oh, my God, am I going to be able to pick up that chocolate? Mm-hmm. You know, that was not a meaningful job. It really, no. you, you know, there's no way you could say, oh, it was meaningful because I was making, it, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But was me, what was meaningful about it, Mark, is that, there was a lot of friends on that assembly line. You know, there were lots of mostly women uh, and they talked to each other because obviously they were really good at that, their job. They knew how to do it. So they basically spent their time chatting to each other about their kids, about their friends. So that's what I realized that I don't think we should make too much about work being meaningful. I mean, some people have meaningful work and some people don't. But what we all have is the opportunity to connect to other people in a working environment. Yeah, I think that's fascinating because I think that is one of the typical, you know, concerns about saying have a meaningful job. It's like, yeah, what about the jobs nobody wants to do? Yeah. Like, who who does that? How do you make that meaningful? Um, yeah. How do you combat that's, burnout? And I think sometimes people make this pretense of meaningfulness. Like they say, oh, you know, the person who's cleaning the floor, you know, they're cleaning the floor because they're adding to the world, whatever it is. I mean, they're cleaning the floor. Let's just be honest. Exactly. About that. Yeah. I don't think it's like a, a spiritual yeah. calling to like no. clean the toilets, right? It's it's a tough job. It's a, it, it's low a tough job. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I worked as probably m- many of our listeners did. I worked as a, as, a, as a waitress for years and years to put myself through university and then my doctorate program. And, and you know, it's it's not a great job serving people, but... The friends are great and you make lots of friends. And so, you know, one of the things that I realized about work, which has really helped me when I think about my book, my new book, Redesigning Work, is that we have to, you know, we have to be honest about what a job is and we have to be honest about what how people do it and, and how they do it best. And then we have to give them flexibility. And that's really what I learned when I made that decision to leave uh, one of the big consulting practices and and joined London Business School is I wanted more autonomy. That, that's what I wanted. I wanted the capacity to spend, I, you know, once I had kids to spend time with them and so on. And I think that, you know, one of the questions I find really annoying at the moment is this complete focus on should we be in the office or should we be in the home? That That honestly isn't the question. In my view, the question is, how do we make this, how do we help this person be more productive and how do we give them more flexibility? Now, for lots of jobs, home versus the office isn't isn't an option. You know, I, I've I've talked in in my late in in redesigning work about one of my sons, Dominic, who's a, a radiologist, and during COVID, he was working on accident and emergency ward for the whole COVID. I mean, no, he couldn't say to anybody, oh, I'm not coming in as a doctor today because I want to work from home. I mean, he's he's a doctor. He works in a hospital. And I think, you know, there's at least 40 percent of jobs where people have no capacity to work from home. And I think we've got to be really sensitive to that, because otherwise people are going to say, look, it's not fair that I'm sitting here doing a job where I've got to be somewhere and yet around me are all sort of administrative people or people doing other sorts of jobs and they're all working from home so that's why in the book I talk about about flexibility not just in terms of of place but also in terms of time and what I say to to companies that I'm advising about you know what should we do about factory workers is you can't do anything about place I mean there's no question about that but you can help them think about 
having more autonomy about the time that they work. And interestingly, Mark, coming back to some of these low paid jobs, part of the reason people left low paid jobs during the pandemic is not the job itself. It was because they couldn't predict when they had when they want, needed to work. And that unpredictability about your schedule is horrible for a human. It just means it mucks up their life. It mucks up their friendships. You know, they, they don't. I saw this actually with my son, Dominic. You know, he'd make he'd say to his friends, I'll see you tonight. And then he couldn't see them. So bringing in more predictability, thinking more about scheduling, giving people an opportunity to have more autonomy about their time, in my view, is as important as talking about place. Yeah, I think that's really critical and giving people some sense of agency, right? Yes. Because I mean, something that that I'm sure you talk about that I talk about when I do my business consulting is like that interplay between autonomy and responsibility. Yeah. And oftentimes resentment builds and one of those is out of whack, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. And we, you remember that old study, uh, the Hackman study from Harvard, which showed that autonomy is one of the most important aspects of work. And, and certainly what motivated me to leave consulting and go into academia was not meaning. Honestly, I didn't think that academia was more meaningful than consulting, and I still don't really. What I wanted, and I'm being honest, was more autonomy. You know, I wanted to be able to control my working hours. And as a consultant running around the world on planes all the time, I had no control at all about, about what I was doing. So I think, you know, we've got an opportunity both because of the technology we have, I mean, that huge technology leap that we made, but also because we've realized you don't need to be, you know, you, those of us who don't need to be in the office don't need to be in the office all the time. But the second thing, Mark, I just wanted to mention, because I know you're keen that we do some great takeaways for listeners. And one of, so one of my takeaways is, you know, be sure that you think about, uh, about time as well as place. It's, it's not just either or. The other thing I, I'd, I'd invite our listeners to talk, think about is about the job itself. Because, you know, there are, so the question is, what, what is your job and, and how is it best done? So, so in my case, uh, I basically am fundamentally a writer who teaches. And so for me to be really productive and to be in the flow and to be creative, I need to be on my own and I need to be uninterrupted. That's what I need. I, I don't need anything else at all. But there's other jobs, maybe many of your listeners, where they have jobs where they have to interact with others. They're, they're leading a team. They're a member of a team. I mean, I actually am a founder of a consulting practice and I was there with them yesterday. That I needed to physically be be with them, to talk with them, to talk about what we were doing, uh, to be in the moment. Now, in fact, as it happened, some of my team are based in Australia, so they had to come in on Zoom as where you and I are now speaking. You in Colorado, me in me in London. Um, but but it was synchronous. You know, we were synchronizing each other. You and I. It's seven. It's you know two o'clock for you. It's eight o'clock for me in the evening. We're synchronized, but there's quite a lot of work that can be asynchronous. Um, you don't actually need to have meetings. If I was to give another tip on this, this is tip number two then. Well, tip number two was about the job and the role. Tip number three is drop the meetings. Yeah, it's, less meetings. Oh my goodness yeah. me. Uh, we've got amazing data on this from both Microsoft mm -hmm. and TCS who, who really follow what you're doing. Uh, and I'll tell you what you're doing. You're having endless meetings. Mm. 
It is, they are a waste of time. I mean, there are meetings that are really important, but not as many as you're having. And the reason that people came out of the, of the pandemic exhausted, and some of them are still exhausted, is they are doing too many meetings. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I want, you talk about the future and technology, right? And I want to pivot a little bit. I don't know if you've done any research or anything on uh, virtual reality technology, you know, with yes. what Meta's doing with the Oculus, right? And what Microsoft is doing with the HoloLens. I'm curious what you think about that, of being the, having a virtual workplace, right? In between yeah. in-person and at home. You know, Mark, I'm I'm really agnostic when it comes to technology. You know, I just, the, the, the question I always ask myself is, how is it working? I mean, how are people actually using it? Let, let me give you an example of that. And then I'll, I will talk about, about, uh, about virtual reality in a moment. Um, there's, a, there's an argument that people don't form creative relationships virtually. But, you know, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review that came out earlier this year on the role of managers. Actually, that's the other thing we learned from our research is managers are really important these days. And I wrote it with a co-author who lives in California. She just stepped down from the board of IBM. In fact, she's now a professor at Harvard Business School. Um, we wrote this amazing article. It's got lots of people love it. It's one of the most downloaded article. Guess what? We never met each other. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, actually we have just met each other because Diane Gerson came over to my house in, in France over the summer and we went, oh my God, it's you. I've only seen you. <laughs> But we actually wrote the whole thing. So, so look, the first thing to say is, I don't think we yet know what it is to be to be tech, technological. The second thing is, there's amazing experiments going on at the moment. So, I'm interested in both Accenture and PwC, who this year or certainly last year did all their graduate induction using virtual reality. Mm. So they brought 60,000 people into the organization. They didn't meet each other. They used virtual reality headsets. They built a whole, you know, universe. They had people talking to each other, going drinking, I mean, you know, going on boats with each other and so on and so forth. So there's just so much that we can learn. I remember, I don't know, Mark, if you do, uh, Second Life. Do you remember Second Life? I do. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So so I use Second Life a lot because one of yeah. my big clients years ago was Nokia, and they were very keen on Second Life. And oh. I had an avatar in Second Life with little sparks coming out of my head. It was just glorious. That really went nowhere. I don't think <laughs> it it really went nowhere. Didn't I know. It? Yeah. It, well, it, it kind of devolved right into like sexuality. Um, it kind of yeah. got all. It got yeah, kind of like grody in some ways, right? And, and, and it could well be that this is going to get grody as well. Yeah. I don't even know what grody means, but I, I, I think we, I can, I think you I can, know you can you feel mean. it, right? Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I can feel it in, in your voice, Mark. So, so look, as far as I'm concerned, the jury is out, and I yeah. think that this is, you know, a, a period. Okay, here's another takeaway number four. Mm -hmm. This is a period of experimentation. You, you know, if you as individuals, as like me, if you're running a small business, as I, I run a small technology business, um, uh, or I advise CEOs, if you're in a large company, this is the time to experiment. Use virtual reality. The reason that PwC and Accenture are using it with their own people is guess what? They're going to use it on you soon. Mm -hmm. And they want to learn it themselves before they bring it out to their clients. And that's what we should all be doing. We should be experimenting with technology, with new ways of working, with working from home, you know, with you know, whatever it, what it is you're excited about doing. 
run an experiment and see whether it works. Because what we've learned from experiments in the past, and I've written up a lot about experiments, is they usually don't work at first. And so, you know, if you've got to give things time to bed in, all the, all the initial work using new technologies generally doesn't work. There was a piece in MIT about this recently because people, it takes time for people to get used to stuff. So experiment and then give it time to, for people to get used to it. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great suggestion. And there's so much potential, I think, out there. But I, I really like what you said in the beginning of is how do people actually use it? You know, yeah. and, and the question I have, the big one with virtual reality is, is it easier than having a screen and a keyboard? Because until you replace that, it's going to be difficult for it to be massively adopted. You know? Yeah, well, well, certainly Accenture and PwC both say it's, it's a completely different experience. Yeah. And they've got data, both of them have got data to show that it's not just better than, you know, using a, a keyboard. It's actually better than meeting people face-to-face. -face. I find that astonishing. I, I don't know if it's a proper research study. I don't know if they get it published in, a, in, a, in an article, in a refereed article, but that's an interesting observation, isn't it? That people actually prefer to meet in a virtual space than to meet face-to-face. -face. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I wonder if there's a generational difference with that. Like I think of my generation millennials and the up and coming that were used to video games and playing and all that type of stuff. It might be more comfortable than an in-person meeting. Yeah, maybe that's it. Well, we, we shall see, Mark. We shall see. We'll see what happens. Okay, so we're going to move into our second commercial break here. Um, when we come back, we want to talk directly to the listeners. Um, I got a couple like case study questions that are kind of kicking around my head that I might uh, send to you. Just hear your thoughts on what a specific you know type of organization might do. So if you're listening, thanks for tuning in so far, and we'll see you on the other side of the commercial break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. In Mark's work with high performers and business owners, it is becoming increasingly clear to him that their biggest obstacle to success is themselves. They are experts in their field, but are dragged down by their anxiety, poor time management, inability to focus, or self-sabotage. His role is to help you overcome these emotional and organizational issues so that you can truly excel in your business and your personal life. One of the most common hurdles that he sees is perfectionism, a crippling anxiety around performance. It's a fear of not being good enough, being publicly embarrassed, or of disappointing others. These fears paralyze brilliant people and bring them to their knees. This course will help you to break free from this mental prison and have more agency in your world. In this online course, we will break down the prison of perfectionism so that you can break out of it. For more information and to sign up, visit Mark dash azulay dot teachable dot com that's mark m a r c dash azulay a z o u l a y dot teachable dot com voice america programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. 
Are you ready to move to your next level? Listen for Empowering Women, Transforming Lives with host Rebecca Hall Greider. Each show will focus on a central topic with discussion, guests, and your questions being featured. Our show is perfect for women who feel a call in their heart to step out in a bigger, more powerful way in their life and just need some encouragement, inspiration, and practical steps to support them on their journey. Empowering Women, Transforming Lives can be heard live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel with a replay of the show Sunday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to From the Ashes with Mark Azoulay. To reach the show today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to podcast at mark-azoulay.com. Now, back to From the Ashes. So, Linda, as, as we've been talking about you know, redesigning work and, and the future of work here, I've been kicking around a couple of case study questions. Um, some that are just from my own curiosity. Some are pulled from some, you know, clients, organizations that I've worked with. So the first one is the case study is, you know, you have a, a tech-based company. Say they're based in California, but they have people that are all over the country and even some um, contractors that are international, right? Small company, less than 50 people. What they struggle with is the friendship component, right? They work remotely, all of them. They don't have an office. And they work, they feel like they work in silos and they've tried some stuff. Like they've tried like, you know, Zoom uh, coffee hours or cocktail hours, right? They've tried like getting people playing an online game together. They've tried, you know, in-person retreats, but those often kind of become more visioning and and, uh, culture retreats, but they haven't got that sense of bonding that I think happens in in-person startups where there's like a, a dartboard league or people are playing ping pong or they go out and they uh, go out to drink after, you know, a big win or something. They're missing some of that. So how would you recommend a company bring in more of that friendship camaraderie if they are all remote, if they don't have an office location? I think that's a really interesting question because, you know, if you just asked me the question and, and just left it at that, I would have recommended all the things that you've just said. So, right. <laughs> yeah. So these are all good recommendations. So, so here's the thought. I, I actually um, advise a company in California that's completely virtual. And what you find when it's an entirely virtual company is that you get a different type of person joining it. So if you're a raging extrovert, you tend not to join a virtual company. It just doesn't suit you. And so you tend to get people a bit more introverted, people who don't need a lot of stimulation from friends. And the other thing that you get is you get people who are spending a lot of time, just seeing your cat, a lot of time uh, with neighbors and friends. So, so you know, coming back to our comment about friendship, Mark, they might not have friends at work, but they've got friends at home. So then you say, well, if work isn't going to be a place of friendship for them, what what is work? And then I think you really have to make it a meaningful experience. As you say, if you you can't have friendship as one of the elements, then it's got to be meaningful. And what the the company that, uh, that I know does 
is it does a lot of socialization to try and help people understand what the job is. They do a lot of mentoring and a lot of coaching, much more than you would normally see. So they sort of don't try to make it so everybody's a friend, but what they do try is to make everybody a coach, everybody a mentor, everybody caring about the development of each other, even though they might not be their most intimate friend. I think that's a great, great advice. And I like the idea of that mentorship because at least there's a one-on-one connection. They they might have connection with the group, but they have some person they feel like is investing in them and that is, you know, has their back. You know, I'm an introvert. So most writers are, as you know. And so, you know, with the the group that I'm a member of, the, 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 the consulting I founded, it's young people, they spend a lot of time, you know, playing, you know, going out and, and drinking in the evenings or going out to social events. I honestly hate those things. I always hated them. And I show up for 10 minutes and then I say to my PA, can I go now? And she says, yeah, yeah, you can go now. I, I've never liked them, but I'm more than happy to have one-to-one conversations with them and coach and mentor them. That's what I really, really like to do. And I think what you'll find in a, a, a group that's completely virtual is it will probably attract people like me. Mm-hmm. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah. So I want to pivot to kind of what you were talking about before of you know, working in like the service industry, right? Or a, or a factory or something where people cannot go remote, right? But what I've seen in some of these companies, especially the larger ones, is that the upper management is starting to go remote. So now you have a real division within the company where people that, you know, being honest, the people that make more money and that are in the corporate admin positions are working from home. And then there's this resentment growing with the people that have to go in and work in the factory or work in the restaurant or or the storefront or whatever, right? And that is one of the explanations for this great resignation thing that's going on in America and I'd imagine in the UK as well, where the people that have to commute, that have to go in that to deal with the angry customers are being very resentful of the leadership that gets to work from the side of the pool or something, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, 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 I absolutely agree. And that the reason I wrote Redesigning Work is, I suppose, as a psychologist, I had anticipated that this would be the case. Yeah. So what I see being played out now, and I, I don't mind, don't want to sound like, a you know, a, somebody who can always predict the future, but it is very predictable. I mean, it's very predictable that people would lose trust in leaders if they felt that they didn't experience what they were experiencing. Yeah. And that's why in the redesign of work, I, I, I use a design, the design principles, the principles of design. So I say it's about understanding the job and the people. It's about experimenting and working through what's possible. It's about then looking at talking to your stakeholders about what that what is going to work and then going through some process of implementation. Now, I know that even listening to that, I'm sure that a number of your listeners are thinking, oh my goodness me, it sounds really terrible to have to do that. But the reality is that if you don't do that, you'll get to where you are now, which is people are resentful. So we've been advising companies from the beginning who are in exactly that position where they have factories and they have managers. And what we've said is, it's really important that everybody talks to each other so that people realize, the managers realize from the very beginning that you know factory workers resent the fact that they have to be in the factory every day and the manager's then able to say from the very beginning okay 
I know there's no choice around that, but let's make choice about something else. And the choice that you've really got, the only way you've got is to change the job and to, to change the way that the time works. So people have more autonomy about their time. So we've been seeing people being much more creative about these, uh, about these jobs, but also being much more sensitive to the fact that there is resentment. And I think that's it's an inevitable inevitability. And so having a conversation about it isn't going to take it away. I mean, you know, it, it's not going to be that we suddenly say, my son who's a doctor can work from home. Actually, he, he's chosen to be an, 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 um, a radiologist. So actually, he can work from home looking <laughs> at x-rays you now can look at from home. But that wasn't the reason he took the choice. But, you know, you do need to ask people to get involved in the in the redesign of their work. And that, for me, is a really important takeaway, the redesign yeah. of work. Yeah, it, it makes me think about the role of transparency, you know, and I think as a work, as a workplace gets to a certain size, transparency, unless really monitored, goes down. And you start to hear that resentment of like, I don't even know what, what my boss does. He just sits on his computer all day watching YouTube in his fancy office, right? Or even from the top down of like, I don't know what our workers do. They're slacking off. They're not doing anything, which in reality, by and large, both people are working very hard, which is very different types of work. Yeah, right. I, yeah, I, I agree. And, and I do think that we need to be really transparent. The, the, the company that I founded, HSM Advisory, one of the things it does is it creates that transparency by, um, by helping people to talk to each other. And, and we've, we've built this amazing sort of jam platform, which allows up to 50,000 people to have a conversation in any language. We've got mm. one running right now out of Australia, which is a global company. We've got 24 languages running and oh. they talk to each other and they're transparent and they'll say to each other, this is how I'm feeling about that. And somebody will say, yeah, I understand that. So, you know, I don't think that these issues that you've brought to the fore, Mark, are easily solved. And it would be wrong of me to suggest they are. But actually being transparent about them and talking about them, I think, is the first step towards coming to an agreement and a set of commitments about what it is to, to now to work in this new ways of working. And, and that word commitment and accountability, I think is going to be really important as we go forward. I think that's a great point. And from, you know, psychology perspective, just acknowledging and validating and vocalizing, having the workers feel like they're being heard goes yeah. a very long way. Instead of people yeah. feeling like you said, they have no autonomy, they, they feel powerless if they feel like their concerns don't go anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, you know, we've been doing, you know, we've got one of these, we call them jams. We've got them running every week at the moment around the world because it's it, just right now, people really want an opportunity to talk to each other and to feel that their voice is heard and to feel that, um, you know, as you say, that they're listened to. That's incredibly important in terms of psychological safety. Yeah, you know, as you're talking about around the world, it makes me think of, you know, the emerging, um, you know, diversity, equity, inclusivity conversation that's happening and cultural differences. And you mentioned earlier in the, in the episode that you um, work a lot in Japan. So I'm wondering how you, and again, this is a huge question, is how you work with cultural differences across valuing hybrid work versus in-person work versus virtual work. Do you, do you see that come up? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. I had to, because I've mostly talked about and written cases and advised multinationals from the beginning of my career. Yeah. I had to I had to answer that question for myself really early on. And that's the, the, the this is the answer I made really early on, and I've stuck with it, which is to say, 
there are good practice that go across all cultures, you know, about treating people well, about giving people a sense of autonomy. And it doesn't really matter what the culture is. A company that wants to do good needs to do those things. So, for example, in Japan, um, lots of Japanese companies have been hopeless at bringing women through to senior positions. But multinationals, European multinationals, American multinationals, have been great at doing that because they haven't said, now we're in Japan, we can't promote women because that's not Japanese culture. They've said, this is how we do it in this, this multinational, and we're going to do it in any country we're in. And I think that sort of sticking to your sense of your values, where whatever the culture, I think is really important. Now, that doesn't mean to say one shouldn't be insensitive to culture. But I um, and I travel the world a lot, but I really do think that that most people know what good is. Most people know what values are and, and you just have to stick with them. And if you see, you know, there are companies that I see which are not running those values. I don't work with them and I would recommend that people don't join them. Yeah, I think that's great. It's like having the culture of your company be at the forefront. And well, if, having if that be attracted yeah. to people if it is, right? If it's a good culture, I mean, if it's right. a terrible culture, then all it's doing is propagating terror around the world. But let's assume that you've got a sense of what's right. And then, yeah, I don't think you need to be, you know, really sensitive to culture because, you know, writers, this is a very philosophical question, by the way, Mark, but it seems to me that there, yeah. that there are universal rights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a hell of a thing to end on. We do start to end our podcast here, but I would love to talk more about that um, in the future. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. I've liked getting to pick your brain to learn so much from your expertise and your experience um, and your knowledge and your research. It's been a fantastic interview. It went by way too fast. So, Linda, if people want to learn more um, about you and learn more from you, where can they find you online? To be honest, the easiest thing is my website, and it's Linda Gratton, L-Y-N-D-A, Gratton, G-R-A-T-T-O-N, uh, .com. It's just a simple website. I'm on LinkedIn as well, of course, so if you want to reach out to LinkedIn, uh, then and I, and, or follow me, on, follow me on Twitter. Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Thank uh, if you, you're, Mark. If you're listening and you've enjoyed the show, please share it on social media. Give it out to people who think might need to hear this message. Um, Give us a five-star review on iTunes. We're really trying to build up that number. And I appreciate you tuning in. And we'll see you next week, another episode of From the Ashes. Thank you for joining host Mark Azoulay on From the Ashes. Be sure to tune in again live next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Meet triumph and defeat and treat those two imposters the same.